0: For someone without diabetes, blood sugars are controlled by a hormone called insulin. Insulin lowers blood sugar levels and is produced by cells in the pancreas called beta cells. If someone is at risk of developing diabetes, their beta cells can't produce enough insulin and that puts the beta cells under stress. The beta cells try to adapt, but if this fails, a vicious cycle begins. Even less insulin production, more stress higher blood sugars, and eventually, a diabetes diagnosis. I'm Krista Lam, and today on the Diabetes Canada podcast, I'm interviewing Dr. Dan Luciani. Dr. Luciani is discovering new ways to preserve beta-cell insulin production and combat diabetes. Dr. Luciani is an investigator with BC Children's Hospital and associate professor in the Department of Surgery, Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Welcome to the show, Dr. Luciani. It's so nice to have you here.
1: Yeah, Hi, Krista. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited about this.
0: Yeah, well, this is part two in our series about beta cells this season. We had Dr. Bruce share on earlier in the season, and he was talking about his work. And as I said at the time, it's pretty awesome that the UBC team seems to have become the epicenter of beta cell research in Canada. You are definitely punching above your weight there.
1: Yeah, I think I can only agree with that. We... Uh... We definitely have a lot of very, very exciting and very uh, high quality island and beta cell research going on in Vancouver. But I have to say that I think I can say that for across Canada, Canada in general has really is punching about this weight in in island and beta cell research, I think.
0: Yeah, we have had some of the incredible islet biologists on the show as well. And it has been really, really wonderful to see how many scientists we have doing this basic or foundational research in Canada. And I wanted to ask you what it was that inspired you to do work on the beta cell.
1: Oh, that's a, that's a great question. And it actually is one that I find interesting to think about myself once in a while, because my, my path to the beta cell was uh, a bit curvy. I'm an engineer by training, and I think if you'd asked me what I was going to be doing, even at the start of my PhD, I would never have guessed diabetes researcher or, or beta cell biologist. I did my training at the Technical University in Denmark in the physics department, studying nonlinear dynamics as part of my master's thesis. And this included biosimulations and modeling of biological systems. And one of the systems that we were modeling, or they were modeling, is uh, was the pancreatic cell, some of its dynamic behaviors. And when I started my PhD training, I agreed to go to the United States, meet with some diabetes researchers, and visit their labs, and try to learn more about what a beta cell actually was for us to improve these models. And in that process, I ended up trying my hand at actual experiments in the lab, working with real beta cells, and I fell in love. I saw them do their thing in real life, specifically using fluorescence microscopy, which are imaging microscopy techniques where we can see the cells change their behavior in response to real-time changes in their environment. And that really fascinated me so much that I chose to sort of ditch the the mathematical models and become a, a biologist, despite lack of training prior to that point.
0: I love that story because it's really often fascinating to me how people come to do this type of work because some people are sort of, you know, excited about it from the time they start undergrad straight through and other people come at it in a more circuitous route. And how do you think having a background in engineering helps you as a beta cell scientist?
1: Oh, that's another great question i i don't know specifically how it helps me other than i think maybe i have a tendency to maybe think a bit more structured about some of the technical aspects of our work and i think maybe another thing that my training in building uh, mathematical models has uh, taught me is to try and connect certain dots in certain ways and i think that's also one of the things that fascinates me about research in general is the the attempt it is to basically connect dots and trying to make sense of the information we have at hand, even if it's incomplete, and then try to figure out what is the information I need to basically learn more about what's really going on here.
0: So interesting. And it's funny because I know Dr. Jim Johnson, he came from a kinesiology background and everybody has these sort of different stories. So I always like to find out a little bit more about what brought you to this field And my next question is going to be about the actual research that you're doing, because you recently received funding from Diabetes Canada for one of your projects. And I would love to know a little bit more about what that is and what you're hoping to find.
1: Yeah, we were, as you mentioned, incredibly fortunate to receive the support from Diabetes Canada. And uh, the specific project we were um, investigating here has to do with ways by which the pancreatic beta cells adapt to stressful environments specifically how they react to the environment that they experience in the progression of type 2 diabetes in this project, that is excess metabolic stress that the beta cells will encounter often in people who are obese that develop what we call insulin resistance, where the insulin the beta cells are producing doesn't signal sufficiently in the insulin target tissues and, by extension, can't lower the blood glucose levels as it's supposed to. This puts extra stress on the beta cells, and I'm sure you've discussed this with your guests in some of the previous podcasts. And one of the things we specifically are studying in my lab are cellular garbage removal mechanisms. It's a process called autophagy, which translates to self-eating. And it's basically under conditions of starvation or even stress induced by excess uh, nutrients, the cells will try to deep house, if you will try to keep uh, their intracellular environment clean and functioning by removing parts of the cell that have become damaged as part of the the stress they're experiencing. And so these things, basically, the cells will generate little sacs where they engulf some of the damaged components and deliver them to an organelle called a lysosome, which is basically like a garbage can. And this all helps the cell stay healthy and function appropriately. And so we're looking at how these mechanisms function. But more importantly we're looking at how they fail because there's increasing evidence that these garbage removal mechanisms are becoming dysfunctional in the progression of type 2 diabetes and also it's become clear recently that this is the case in early type 1 diabetes maybe even prior to disease onset so it's important for us to understand if this contributes to disease and also why it's happening
0: and so if someone was listening who was living with type 2 diabetes for example Would you say that this is a process that is hopefully looking at risk reduction ways that we can, or is that incorrect? I just want to make sure I'm understanding correctly.
1: I think uh, down the road, the hope would be that we can identify cellular mechanisms that fail very early on. And by understanding these mechanisms better, might be able to identify ways in which we can prevent it. So that would be, in a sense, talking about risk reduction. Yes.
0: Okay. Okay. And you talked a little bit about how the beta cells are stressed. What does that mean? Because I think that sometimes people don't understand what it means when a beta cell is stressed.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm actually glad that you bring it up and and challenge me on that because I remember once some years ago talking about stress at a poster session where we had people from the public there. And it was clear afterwards that stress means different things to different people a cell biologist versus us when we talk in our everyday life. And when a beta cell experiences stress, it, in essence, translates to the fact that it has to do more work than it's capable of doing. And there are different types of stress. There are some very common types of stress, and one is associated with the workload of producing all the insulin that is needed. And this all happens in a part of the cell that's called the endoplasmic reticulum. It's a little protein factory, basically. And that endoplasmic reticulum stress means that that little protein factory can't keep up. It gets damaged. It starts breaking down. Another organelle, another cell component that experiences a lot of stress is the mitochondria. And as many of the listeners might know, of course, mitochondria are the energy-producing machines in the cell, if you will. And they become overworked in part when you have too much sugar in your blood because they help break down the sugar and that is actually a very important signal for the release of the insulin in the beta cells. So when they get stressed and they start failing, you start having a loss of the ability to sense the sugar in the blood and to secrete the insulin appropriately.
0: So I think that that's really helpful because for many people who listen to the podcast where we're talking to foundational or basic scientists, it can be really hard to understand the actual physiology. But the ideas behind the work are really understandable. And so in this case, you're hoping to find ways, I'm guessing, to make the cells less stressed and therefore sort of understand why they go on to produce type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes?
1: That's correct. So it's become apparent, as I think I mentioned earlier, that these clearance mechanisms, this garbage removal mechanism, helps keep, for instance, the mitochondria happy because when parts of the mitochondrial community in the cell start becoming damaged, they will get delivered selectively to these garbage cans. And in that way, you can keep the population of these energy producing machines healthy. And so when we see that this process starts failing, we of course want to understand what leads to that failure and how can we prevent it to keep the cell functioning as it's intended to.
0: It's really, really fascinating because I think for me, when I started learning more about the physiology and diabetes, I immediately started hearing about knockout genes and all sorts of things. And it sounds like, oh, my gosh, once we fix this one thing, we will have solved diabetes and everything will be great again. But that's not how it works. Correct. That <laughs> if that was the case,
1: I wish it was. It hasn't turned out to be the case so far.
0: Yeah. And as I I had uh, Dr. Wu on recently, and she said she's cured diabetes in so many mice at this point that she wishes she had a similar success rate in humans, but uh, we haven't. And so with foundational research, why is it so important? And I think sometimes when we're looking at why do we fund this type of research, people who are listening might want to know, well, we know that this isn't going to do anything right now, but what is the purpose long-term?
1: Yeah, that's, of course, a a very good question, and it's one we need to think carefully about when we decide what to fund in the research realm. It is tempting to focus exclusively on the research that has an immediate translation to the clinic, and there's obviously a lot of value to that. But I think we also need to remember that a lot of the basic discoveries that have been made over the years, whether it's in biology or in physics or in chemistry, have down the road led to breakthroughs if not revolutions, in healthcare as well. So generally speaking, I think it is very, very important that we just try to learn as much as we can about the mechanisms of biology and physiology that are involved in these processes. Because you can't fix something if you don't understand how it works in the first place.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I did a talk recently, and one of the things I pointed out is that almost every single thing around us in terms of the medications we use, or even the chairs that we're sitting on, were the result of foundational science at one point or another. So it is really, really important, but I often find that people don't realize that all of this investigative work is leading to these wonderful things that we have now.
1: Obviously, the objective of our research, however basic it is, and however much I'm interested in the biology of these cells, that the goal and the hope, of course, is that we are one step closer, if not more than one step closer to identifying a way to prevent the failure of these beta cells in individuals that are at risk or have a lifestyle or other environmental conditions that predispose them or push them towards developing the disease.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So definitely very, very important. I want to circle back. You had mentioned earlier, you know, extolling the amazing things that UBC is doing with beta cells. And you pointed out very rightly that there are things happening across Canada that are incredible. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the push towards collaboration. In many ways, science used to be quite siloed. Now it is very much not siloed. There is a lot more of this team grants and people working across institutions and across the world. Can you talk a little bit about how collaborations have helped your work?
1: Oh, I could talk about that for a very long time because I am very fortunate to have some fantastic colleagues who have assisted, and not assisted, I should say, have changed my approach to my own research. You've already mentioned several names, Dr. Bashir, Dr. Johnson. In fact, I'll point out that the Diabetes Canada project, a major component of that is that we want to look at these mechanisms in the context of whether there are differences between males and females. And this is a new direction of of focus for my own lab, but it's something that a colleague here at UBC, Dr. Elizabeth Rideout, is an expert in. And so uh, her work has inspired, and we are collaborating on this project and another project as well. So her expertise in sex differences in metabolism, and recently she has also demonstrated sex differences in the stress resilience of pancreatic beta cells, is really paving the way for us to be able to ask new questions as well in the context of the mechanisms that we study and have been studying for years now.
0: Yeah, and many people don't know, I uh, my pleasure of speaking to Dr. Rideout in the past about her work, is that we didn't study biological sex in many different contexts prior to very fairly recently. So her work has been doing some very groundbreaking things, and it's wonderful to hear that you are collaborating because I think that a pretty awesome example of how when we start to work together, we find these incredible things. And I'm going to transition again, and I will apologize for transitioning back and forth, but I wanted to go back to talking a little bit about your lab and some of the other things that you're working on, because I always like to give people a chance to talk about other projects that they have going on that people might find interesting.
1: Yeah, we we have a, a number of projects. They all tend to come back to the same general topic, which is the beta cell and its response to adverse conditions, how they adapt, and how adaptation fails. And so another major component of that is that we've studied sort of a further step down the stress road for the cell, which is the fact that overtly stressed cells, if they can't recover, will, in a way, commit suicide, and they can die off. And this, of course, the loss of beta cells is a major factor as well, both in type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So our research for a number of years has also tried to understand the mechanisms by which this loss occurs. And one of the interesting things we found when we studied proteins involved in regulating this cell death was that the same proteins have roles in regulating regulating stress adaptation. So these things are very intimately connected, and we're trying to pick apart exactly how that is and how we can and try to understand how we can use that knowledge to prevent the progression of this stress towards death path, if you will.
0: I have a follow-up, if you don't mind, on that question. Is that something that would be relatable? I know there's a lot of research being done right now in terms of you know, maybe we can create beta cells in the lab and then implant them in people. But the argument, especially in type 1, has been, well, what's going to stop the body from killing them again? Would understanding that pathway help with that type of research?
1: It very much could. So when I talk about understanding the stress responses and preventing stress in pancreatic beta cells, it applies not just to the the natural progression of type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes. It is very much relevant for the transplantation scenario whether it's transplantation of human donor islets in the clinic, or if it's, as the field now is progressing toward, transplantation of stem cell-derived beta cells. Because the environment that they experience after transplantation is very stressful, to use that word again. They don't get the blood supply they need. The body might still be attacking them. They might be experiencing excess glucose levels because the, the recipient of this graft is a diabetic. There are a number of factors, and these are many of the same factors that we study in the DISH and that are relevant also for type 1 and type 2 babies. So again, it comes back to understanding some basic mechanisms that can have relevance also for the, for the transplantation scenario. And I will add to that our interest in the mitochondria in this context actually has also gone in a new direction for us. And this is another collaboration. This is with Dr. Francis Wen, uh, our colleague at the BC Children's Hospital Research Institute, and we have just started a project uh, that has been generously supported by uh, JRF to try and understand how we can use the mitochondria to generate better insulin secreting beta cells from human embryonic stem cells.
0: I think this is really going to be interesting to people because that's the sort of practical application that people understand in the diabetes field. Because I know I have many people in my life who are very interested in seeing how these transplant projects continue and develop and grow, and obviously understanding the mechanisms helps so much. And I'm going to ask my final question, which is really, you don't live with diabetes. I'm sure you have people in your life who live with diabetes. How have people living with diabetes inspired your work? Because I know at the BC Diabetes Research Network and at UBC, there's a lot of people with diabetes who have been involved in the work. So how have they inspired what you do?
1: That's another great question. And I must confess to the fact that throughout the majority of the early part of my career as a beta cell researcher, I hadn't interacted much with people living with the disease. But most definitely in later years when that started happening, it brings a whole new perspective to what we do. First of all, it's it's incredibly inspiring and motivating to know that what you're doing may someday help people who live with this disease that, of course, affects their life in so many negative ways. Or can affect our life in negative ways. So that in itself is a motivation. You know, when you try to understand something very basic, as we often do, having that perspective is motivating and it, it helps equilibrate uh, our view on what we're doing.
0: Wonderful. I think that's a lovely place to end things and such an inspiring note to stop on. So thank you so much for having this conversation with me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Crystal. It's my pleasure.
0: A huge thank you to Dr. Luciani for joining us on the show today. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast provider of Your Choice. A note that we are now available on Amazon Music. And don't forget to rate or review us. Really, it does help you find the show and we appreciate it so much when you hit those five stars. If you'd like more information on the topic or others related to diabetes, visit diabetes.ca or contact Diabetes Canada at infodiabetes.ca. You can also find us on social media on all the platforms at Diabetes Canada. Thanks for listening.